Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Good morning. Uh, my name's Terry. If we haven't met yet, uh, please come see me afterward, man. I'd love to meet you. I'm one of the pastors here. Today, we are in the book of Colossians. Actually, for the last time in this series, we're in the book of Colossians. Uh, we're wrapping it up today. And man, um, you know, we, we believe certain things as a church, and, and some of those uh, include that God is sovereign, that is, He's King of heaven and earth, and that He provides. And so, it's amazing, as Pastor James and I have been going through this series, I don't know if, if you guys have noticed out there, but we've noticed kind of behind the scenes that God seems to be, not just in this series, but time and time again throughout the life of our church, He has, unbeknownst to us, way when, before when we're planning out sermon series and messages, that He gives us what we need from His Word when we need it. And we consider it providential, right? He's, he's providing. And, and that's what I, I believe we'll see today. Um, as Pastor James talked about at the beginning of the service this past Tuesday, we announced where God uh, is calling us to move. We've, we firmly uh, believe that. We believe that God is opening the doors for us to minister His gospel in a new context. Um, and by the way, those of you who consider Reach Life your home, our prayer is that you will continue to consider Reach Life your home as we transition to this new location and in this new season. So it's an exciting time for us, and we're looking forward to uh, what God has in store. But like I said, today, interestingly, I believe that God providentially has us in a passage that talks about things that we need to be mindful of as we transition into this new context. They're descriptive uh, for how we need to look. Specifically today, we're going to be talking about the way of the ambassador. Um, the way of the ambassador of, of Jesus. Now, you may not be familiar with that term ambassador unless you follow politics or whatever, but essentially an ambassador is a person who is sent by a sovereign, right, king or nation or whatever, to represent the sovereign to people that are not part of that kingdom, Right? And so their job as an ambassador is to represent the king in a new nation or in a different nation that doesn't know the king. And so they take the message of the king to that people in hopes to persuade them that the message of the king and the king himself is a good king. And isn't that exactly what we get to do as representatives of Jesus in the world? Uh, the Apostle Paul describes it elsewhere as God makes his appeal through us. What a... That almost sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? That God would choose us to make His appeal to people who don't, who don't yet know Him. That's an incredible thing. And this is what we see in this passage. Paul is going to be describing the way we should walk as ambassadors. Again, God making His appeal through us. How, how do we do that? What is the way in which we do that? Well, if you're in the book of Colossians, go ahead and turn, turn to chapter 4. And that's where we're going to be this morning. If you are able, would it be possible for us to stand and read the Word of God? It's a really brief passage. We're only going to be reading verses 2 through 6 uh, for our time together this morning. So Colossians chapter 2, um, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. This is the Word of God. Continue steadfastly in prayer 
being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We'll stop there uh, for today. You can be seated. Thank you. That's the Word of God. I pray that we will receive it as the Word of God. There, there are more. You notice there when you're reading through the passage, there, there's, there's more at the end, and there's lots of uh, like salutations by Paul and some directives for specific people within the church context. And there, there's some great things to glean out of that section as well, but that'll have to be for another time. Again, as I said today, we're going to focus on the way of the ambassador. So in other words, like what are the, the, the prayers and the practices and the overall posture of an ambassador um, that we see in this text and that God uh, has for us in, in this moment here today. Well, first, in verse 2, the way of the ambassador says that the ambassador is prayerful. And the ambassador is prayerful. Specifically, Paul describes the prayer life of an ambassador of Jesus as steadfast, watchful, thankful prayer. Um, you know, the steadfastness in prayer, as we come out of this time of dedicated prayer and fasting as a church. Um, if you're, you're new here and you, or uh, you weren't aware, we have been in a time of dedicated prayer and fasting as a church as we seek God's, again, provision and direction and things for this season for us. Um, let me just ask that you remain steadfast in, in prayer. You don't have to, you know, we're officially finished with the fasting se- uh, season and, and the, the Tuesday night prayer sort of thing, but I, I, let me just ask that you... Sp- Remain steadfast. It's kind of an ongoing kind of thing here in the Texas. Prayerfulness is not just for a season. It's a steadfast thing, but especially as it relates to the mission of the gospel. The truth, the truth is, Reach Life Church, without God, we cannot do anything. And sometimes, unless we pray, God does not do things. Doesn't Jesus say that you have not Because you ask not. So this prayerfulness is super, super important for us. So we've been grateful for this dedicated time of prayer. But going forward, our desire is for us as a church not to just have a time of prayer, but to be a people of prayer. You see the difference? Not just a dedicated season of prayer, but to be a prayerful people, to continue steadfastly in prayer. That that phrase that's rendered that way in your Bible there, and and some other translations is rendered as devote yourselves to prayer, keeping awake in it. And I think that really captures it well. Keeping awake, being mindful, being alert, being a prayerful person. I think that really gets to it. And from the stories that I hear personally, um, God has used this dedicated season that we've been in prayer individually for us. He's, He's rooting things out of us. Right? He's calling us to things. He's uniting us together individually and corporately. And so I would just say, let's remain not just also steadfast in prayer, but also the other thing that it says in, in, the, in the passage there, watchful and thankful in prayer as well. And we've seen this on Tuesday nights also. 
that as we begin to, it's almost like, you know, we would walk through the acts of prayer, adoration, confession, uh, thanksgiving, supplication, and it's almost like from the beginning in our hearts, we can't help but thank God for what He's done, right? We want to skip to the T part in, in the acts uh, acrostic there because we are, we are thankful people. And as we've seen on Tuesday nights, that is a fertile ground, man, for powerful prayer, a heart of thankfulness, a heart of thanksgiving. Uh, of course, we know as Christians, um, isn't it true that sometimes it's easier to be thankful than at other times? Let's just be real. Isn't that the case? Like if you're going through a, a difficult season in life, and I know some of you are, do you often maybe find it difficult to be thankful as you kind of sit in that season? I'm, I do. I can find it difficult to, be, to have a heart of thankfulness, especially one that is steadfastly thankful uh, in a season of difficulty. But um, I, I want us to remember who it is that's writing this letter to the Colossian Christians. This guy, the Apostle Paul that we know, is the one who is writing this, this message to be watchful and, and thankful in prayer. Remember, this is a guy who has already, at this point of writing, had to flee for his life, has been beaten with stones and left for dead, has seen multiple stints in prison, and is currently in prison for preaching the gospel while he's writing this letter. This is not a guy who is unfamiliar with suffering. This is not a man who's unfamiliar with difficult times. This is not a man who's not in a difficult time as he's writing. He's in prison. And so it's him that is, or he that is saying, remain awake in thankful prayer. And so we need to be aware that this kind of thankfulness prayer is not like rose-colored where we don't see our difficulties. Do you think Paul recognized the chains on his hands? As he was writing this, he says down in verse 18 that he did. He said, uh, I, I write this with my own hands. Please remember my chains. In other words, what that seems to mean is that I know my handwriting is bad, but I'm shackled right now. Right? He, he gets it. He understands the difficulty. So we see our circumstances. We really do. We also see that God is sovereign over our lives and God is with us down in the roots and muck of our lives. He is with us in it. And Paul knows this. He's encouraging us and the church at Colossae and us by extension to keep that in mind. Therefore, we can have joy in difficult times. We can even be thankful in prayer, steadfastly thankful, even if like Paul, we're shackled down in life. Christianity is a realist view of the world. It's a realist view. It doesn't deny our struggles, our desires, our difficulties like some other views of the world do. It's a fully real, true-to-life, robust accounting of how things really are. See, not only does the gospel give us the truth about Jesus, the gospel gives us the truth about our neighbors, truth about ourselves, and that personally helps me appreciate Jesus all the more. I look into the mirror of my soul, or uh, look into the mirror, metaphorically speaking, and see my soul, and I say, you know what? Jesus is right about me. <laughs> he sure is. Thankfully, Jesus is right about himself too, right? Um, so praise God. Uh, the gospel gives us the truth. Therefore, we can be thankful and seek the Lord 
um, even though we may be in tough times. So again, let's be watchful and thankful as we pray. So those, those are the sort of the prayers of the ambassador of Christ, how we should walk at this time. Paul also, also, Paul also gets to the practices of an ambassador. Namely, first he says in verses 3 through 6, he says the ambassador is on mission for the gospel. Not just on any kind of mission. We're specifically on a mission for the gospel. And I'm just going to unpack kind of what that means, like I believe Paul does, as we go through the text here. Specifically, he says that the ambassador is to always be relying on God to provide the way or open the way. He's asking uh, the people to pray for he and Timothy because he's fully aware. Paul, is, This is the Apostle Paul. Um, he is fully aware that he is insufficient for the task. Any task, but specifically the task of preaching the gospel and planting churches in hostile environments. So Reach Life Church, can I make an appeal to you, please? For my own sake and for Pastor James' sake and for the sake of our church, please pray for us. Please pray for us. We are inadequate and we know it. If you know me, you know, you know I'm inadequate, right? But I'm not blind to the fact, right? Like I, I know that I need you to pray for me. I know that I cannot do what God has called me to do. Therefore, I need the Lord to do it on my behalf. Therefore, I need you to pray for me. Pastor James needs you to pray for him. Not only are you aware of my shortcomings, I'm aware of my shortcomings. Please pray for us. Specifically, Paul asked them to pray, verse 3 continues, that God may open to us a door for the Word. We believe that God is doing that for us right now. We believe that God is opening a door in the Reynolds community in the midst of you know, that, that, um, that Fairview, Oakley, Hall Creek, Bell, or in, and anywhere else God would have us reach, but area that is broken, that is hurting, that needs the Savior, we believe that God is opening a door for His Word in that place. And we believe um, that we should continue to pray that God will keep doing that, keep opening that door for us. And... Um, we believe as Reach Life Church that any door God allows us to walk into, we should see, if we, if we're, if we have our, our brains on straight, our heads on straight, any door is an opening for the Word of God. Any door He lets us walk in through is an opening for His, for his Word. And namely, we're going to get to it in just a second, not only His Word in general, but namely, specifically, the Gospel. I said it earlier, but do you realize that God doesn't need me, God doesn't need you for people to come to know the gospel and be saved? He doesn't need us. The crazy thing is, and I can never wrap my brain around it, He doesn't need us, but He chooses to use us. Us. <laughs> we know ourselves. God chooses to use us and provide doors for us, that should be a 
tremendously humbling thing to think, God, you are, you're the maker of heaven and earth. Jesus, you're the Savior, I'm not. Yet in your grace, you have reached down to me, not only saved me, but sent me out as an ambassador on your behalf. God is saying, hey, hey, you want to know Jesus? Uh, go talk to David. Go talk to Shane. Can you imagine? This is what God is doing for us. So we recognize that we have utter dependence on God. Paul is saying we, we should pray that God may open the door for us. We can't open the doors. We shouldn't open the doors. We must pray that God open the doors. And we believe that God is opening the doors. This is exactly what we believe He's doing. He, he can and will and does, and we think is opening doors for us. So not only are they relying on God to, to open the door, but the ambassador should also be resolving to speak the gospel boldly. Um, Paul says there that we, he, he was to declare that message. That word, to declare something in modern society can be a difficult notion sometimes because declaring means that you're, you're saying something, that uh, you're making a bold statement that may be offensive. You're declaring it. If it wasn't going to be a con somewhat controversial, you wouldn't need to declare it. Everyone would already think it, right? And so we, we, Paul says he's going to declare this message. He's praying that God would let him declare this message. And yeah, the message may, may be offensive. It may not be received well. And Paul's saying, yet, that is exactly what God has called him to do. So he's asking the church to pray that God will open the doors for him to do so. Again, we believe that any door that God opens for us is for the purpose of declaration, of declaring. Declaring what? Right? Declaring what? In the world we live in, there's lots of things being declared, aren't there? We hear messages shoved down upon us all the time. Well, well what, are, what are we supposed to, to declare? Well, verse 3 tells us that there is one consistent nail that we should keep hammering on and keep hammering on. What is it that we're supposed to proclaim? Paul says, the mystery of Christ. You say, well, that's a mystery to me. I don't know what that means, right? The mystery of Christ. What's he talking about? Well, again, this, this book of Colossians that we've been reading is actually a letter to the church. And it wasn't normally, uh, it wasn't at first divided up into chapters and verses. and things. It's just a letter to the church. And previously in this letter, back in what we would call chapter 1, he answered this question. He talked about what the mystery of Christ was. So let's go back to chapter 1 and read verses 25 through 27. Paul's going to tell us, okay, this is what we're declaring. This is the message that we have for the world. He says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. There we are, an opening door for the word. Let's keep going. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, that's non-Jews, are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What mystery? which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery that's now revealed. The mystery that had been sort of 
like clouded and misty and hidden for, for ages, all ages before. They were not privileged to understand fully what was going on. These Christians in Colossae and we now here in Asheville are, by God's grace, privy to the mystery. God has revealed it to us, and, and, and namely that is that we sinners can be forgiven and provided fellowship with God in such a way that by His Holy Spirit, Jesus takes up residence in our very lives, Christ in us. So we broken, wretched people have the hope of glory. We will be made new. Because Jesus rose from the dead and lives, we live also. Not just now, but for eternity. That's the mystery revealed. And that is the great news about Jesus. That's what, that's what the gospel means. It's the good news that Jesus, holy, perfect, blameless, God in the flesh, died in our place on the cross so that we have the hope of glory. And He will live via His Holy Spirit within us. So we not only have presence with Him for eternity, we have presence in life with Him right now. Man, that's tremendous news. If you know the truth about you like I know the truth about me, that's incredible news. That's incredible news. Uh, in short, you don't have to bear the guilt of your own sin. You can be free. Uh, it, it, again, even more, you can have a relationship with the maker of heaven and earth right now. Amazing. That, that, that's really great news. And that's the message. Again, we got, we got one hammer and one nail. And we're going to hammer that nail and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask God to saturate my own soul with it. We're going to saturate one another with it. And by God's grace, we're going to take it out to the world and let people know they too have the hope of glory. His name is Jesus. Right? That's, that's the message. That's the mystery revealed. That's what we get the privilege of sharing in this new context. Um, now, if you grew up in a church environment or if, hey, we're sitting in Western North Carolina, you've probably heard those things before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus died on my behalf. What, you know, kind of whatever. Ho-hum, yawn, sighs quietly, right? It's probably a message that you've heard before, at least to some, some extent. But uh, our leadership team went down to a church this past Sunday uh, evening to uh, observe what they do and their processes and, and, and things like that. And they had a, a saying that, that they use. They're, they're only seven years old like we are, right? And so they said, we are a young church that believes old things. We're only seven years old, <laughs> right? We're a young church, but we believe old things, old, ancient things. Things. And I thought that was a great quote, man, because again, I think it, it fits us. We're at the same age of church as they are, um, but the gospel's an old thing. And that can sometimes be distasteful to the world around us. Um, and I just want to make an aside here and, and address that for a few minutes. If you're watching online, or maybe you're here today, or maybe you have somebody in your life that has this kind of reservation about the gospel of Jesus. That's an old thing. And they see that as a, as a bad thing. I, I want to just gently draw your attention to a bias that you may have or that that person in your life 
may have. And I want to encourage you to, to maybe be open to possibly having a bias that you might be succumbing to what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery um, when it comes to Christianity. You might have some notions in your mind like, you know, times have changed. Uh, this stuff is what my parents and grandparents believed, and my grandparents and, and parents don't know anything, and so uh, they, don't, they don't know how things are now, and so their religion is just as out of touch as they are. You know, we moderns or postmoderns are wiser, more evolved than our predecessors. It's time to, it's time to move on from those old-fashioned things and, and let those old views go. You know, surely you're not asking us here in our modern times to turn back the clock and go back to those things? Well, C.S. Lewis responds to this kind of idea this, uh, in his uh, book, Mere Christianity, which when I read it, in my mind, I read with a British accent, but I'm not going to read it with a British accent this morning. Uh, I'll spare you of my bad British accent. Uh, but, but he says this, As to putting the clock back, would you think I was joking if I said you can put a clock back and that if the clock is wrong... It is often a very sensible thing to do. But I would rather get away from the whole idea of clocks. We all want progress. But progress means getting nearer to the place you want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not you get, any, get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road and in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. We've all seen this when we do arithmetic. When I've started a sum the wrong way, the sooner I admit this and go back and start over again, the faster I shall get on. There's nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it's pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistakes. We are on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. I think Lewis has nailed it, writing decades ago. You know, uh, just as a further aside here, I've noticed that this kind of chronological snobbery seems to only be the sentiment about Christianity and not about other old ideas. You know, people seem just fine with like Native American religion or paganism or Hinduism or Buddhism, which, all of which have, have been held for thousands of years, generation after generation, but somehow Christianity is old-fashioned. Isn't that weird? Maybe it's not about the age of a thing at all. Maybe, and it's, I believe it's more likely the case, that calling Christianity outdated is just a way of not having to deal with the truth of it. So I just want to make us aware of that potential bias that we could have of chronological snobbery. And as, as we move into this new phase, this new location, this new season of ministry, this is the culture that Reach Life has been born in, and this is the culture that we're now replanting in at a new location in a new context. So... How are we to interact with those who do not believe the good news about Jesus? Maybe they think it's outdated or outmoded. Well, we're, we're supposed to share it boldly, with, declare it, right, without apology. 
but what is to be our overall posture? What should our demeanor look like? Well, first, we should share it regardless of results. Results are not up to us. Paul was, again, as I said, currently in prison for sharing the gospel. What were the results of Paul sharing the gospel? Got him in jail, right? He's, he's in prison. Again, he said he's writing this with chains on his hands. Uh, but here is Paul in prison for sharing the gospel, asking the people to actively pray for further opportunities to share the gospel, right? It's amazing. He, he, is, he does not care. He's been stoned. He's been left for dead. He's been uh, abandoned by his friends. God, uh, please help these people pray for me that you'll give me further opportunities for persecution. No, we don't want persecution, but opportunities to preach the gospel. And if that leads to persecution, so be it. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to help people hear the good news. Paul, he says he wants to make it clear, right? And he says that's how he's supposed to speak in verse 4. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. I want to make the gospel clear. Not that people would necessarily receive it, but at least they can understand it. At least they can understand it. He says he's, this is what he's supposed to be doing. This is his lone mission. This is what Paul is called to do. Um, again, there were repercussions for him, clearly. He, he's in prison, yet this is how he's supposed to speak regardless of results. And I believe that uh, not only that, but Paul says, okay, I'm going to do it without result or regardless of results, but there's a particular way that God wants me to go about that. And I think he describes it in verse five. He keeps going. Um, he says that we should walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. And how I've worded that in your outline is reasonably and wisely. Walking in wisdom with outsiders making the best use of the time. And your outline that's reasonably and wisely. So we are supposed to declare, right? Proclaim the gospel. Hear me, family. That does not mean that you get to be jerks. Okay? We, the gospel message is offensive enough. You're a sinner. You can't save yourself. You need the Savior. There's only one. That's, that can be offensive to our, our sensibilities. But I, as Jesus' ambassador, should not be offensive as I share that message, right? I should walk reasonably and wisely. We're to have wisdom toward outsiders, Paul says. I heard a, a saying once that if you cut off a person's nose, there's no use in giving them a rose to smell. In other words, if um, your interactions with this person are so abrasive and tactless that you insult them, cutting off their nose, they are not even going to be able to smell the beautiful scent of the rose, the gospel that you're sharing with them. You've, you've affronted them. You've cut off their ability to smell the rose. So let's be wise with our interactions. Let's make the most use of the time, which is one of the reasons we're moving to, to rentals soon. We see the, 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 the door open. God has opened the door. We want to make the most use of the time and we want to do so wisely. Uh, how do we do that then? Let's further unpack what that looks like. How do we walk in wisdom? Verse 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned 
with salt. That's what walking in wisdom looks like among those who don't know the Lord. It says gracious. I, I believe graciousness is something that is sorely lacking in our cultural conversation right now. When people disagree, there's no graciousness. We think the worst of the person who disagrees with us, right? That's a horrible thing, both when we do it and when other people do it, right? It's, there's no graciousness. Uh, what does it mean to be gracious to someone? That, that The Greek word written as gracious there in your Bible is uh, the root word for the word charity, Right? It carries the idea of giving the other person the benefit of the doubt, the principle of charity, of, of being pleasing, of being joyful for the other person to talk to. <laughs> Can you imagine sharing a message that is difficult like the gospel, yet in a way the person's like, that's difficult to hear, but I know that this person standing in front of me talking with me about my life and the gospel, the good news of Jesus, loves me. Right now I think they're wrong, but they, I know they love me. I know they love me. Um, to be gracious with another person means, first of all, to, to, to have that demeanor means that first we're going to have to be very humble about ourselves. We have to really be humble. And again, I think that's what's missing today is some humility. We could really use some humility with one another. Um, brothers, sisters, reach, reach life folks. Should we, who understand the gospel, who understand how gracious God has been to us, that word gracious, how gracious has God been to us sinners? If we understand that, we should be the most gracious people to anybody else. Man, if we know how kind, how forbearing God has been with us, are we more righteous than God is? No. Are those people more separated from God than we once were? No. Therefore, we should be, of all people, the most gracious, the most winsome, the most loving as we share the message of the gospel. We, we should be the most humble. So as we walk out these doors this week, we may find ourselves recoiling at what we see in the world. But can I just put back in our memory and our, our current emphasis that God also recoils when He sees our evil too? Are we aware of that? I think if we stay aware of that, then it's going to produce a lot more humility as we go to share the gospel. And you know, if not for Jesus graciously dying in our place, graciously pulling us out of the pit, still walking with us in our lives, because we still rebel, do we not? He's still gracious. Let's just, let's, let's be gracious. So we of all people should be gracious sinners, talking to other sinners about how to know the Savior. Um, not only are we to be gracious, it says in the passage there, but also we should have our speech seasoned with salt. What does that mean? To have something seasoned means to make it savory, right? It makes someone's mouth water as you're thinking about lunch now, right? It's savory. They, in other words, they want to taste what you have. It's seasoned with salt. Of course, salt is a preservative, yes. It also makes people thirsty. 
They can taste and see in your life and in your words that the Lord truly is good. Um, Again, when we're saturating ourselves, our relationships and the world around us with the good news about Jesus, it will uh, have a preserving effect, right? It will will, um, push back spiritual decay. That's what the gospel does in a culture. But in our lives and in our relationships, it produces a sweetness, a savoriness in our lives that makes people hungry for what we have. Gracious, seasoned with salt. Um, the, The idea would be that our lives would look so different because of how the gospel has revolutionized how we live and how we love one another that people will see the contrast in the dark world They'll see the, the, the little tiny light that we are, and they'll see that, that even that little light is a reflection of the light of the world, the Lord Jesus. And then they will want to know what you know. They will want to know who you know. Right, that's, that's the idea. Um, so that, that's, that's how we do it, and that's the effect that it has. It, it empowers us. I want to show you how it empowers us. In verse 6, Paul just keeps unrolling this idea. Verse 6. So that, all these things, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You know, back in the first year of Reach Life Church, I uh, did a training that showed us how all questions in life, all situations in our own lives and around us can be helped through some facet of the gospel. It's a multifaceted diamond. And all of life is addressable through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe I can do that training again sometime, but isn't this similar to what the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15? Listen, doesn't this echo Paul? But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect. Right? That is, let the gospel saturate your own life Recognize, honor Jesus as holy. Be ready to answer, make a defense of the gospel to show them why Jesus is your hope, right? Why the gospel can revolutionize and save their lives as well. Uh, So we do this winsomely. We do this lovingly. We do this with gentleness and respect, graciously seasoned with salt. Again, Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. If you know me, you know this is a topic that I'm really passionate about. Um, and I want to encourage us as we move into our new context, just a few closing things. Let's be humble ourselves. Let's be humble with our calendars. Let's be humble with our priorities before the Lord and be prepared to give people the true hope of the good news about Jesus. And depending on your stage and season of life, this may look different for you than it does for other people. Okay, so I just want to say, some of us, I know you, some of us are stretched too thin already. I don't want you to be more stretched, stretched more thinly. That would be unhealthy, right? I don't want you to take on more. If that's you, we want you. But we would encourage you to come with us, worship with us, Pray for us, as we said before. And when the time is right, when the season is right, then serve with us. For the vast majority of us, though, I think, if we open our lives 
in ourselves humbly before the Lord, we will see that we really can and should contribute to this gospel work in ways that we haven't been. It may cost us some leisure. Sacrifices will have to be made, but it will be worth it. Uh, the truth is that people all around us are seeking answers to life's biggest questions. Why am I here? Does my life have purpose? Can I ever be truly loved? In the world where life is so dark, is there anything actually that's, that's truly uh, good and, and beautiful? Jesus is the true, the good, and the beautiful, and we get to share Him with the world around us. Is that a privilege? It is. It is.